Hello and welcome to Required Reading. This week we are visited by a colleague in the English department named Mike Carroll and we're talking about Beowulf. Now, I know some of you have mixed thoughts already. Some of you might have cold sweats of trying to interpret Middle English or whatever. Uh, some of you might have seen that weird Angelina Jolie, Anthony Hopkins movie with like CGI nonsense. And it is nonsense. But don't worry. Uh, rarely have I gotten to sit in a situation where someone like Mike, who is so enamored with a project and secondarily wrote his master's thesis on it. It's like a wonderful little course in a minute. And uh, if you don't leave this wanting to talk Beowulf, read Beowulf, I don't know what will ever convince you. Uh, specifically, for those of you trying to keep track at home, we read the Seamus Heaney version, uh, the, I believe, Nobel Prize winner for Irish poetry. Um, his translation, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for a while, but it is incredibly readable. Uh, so feel free to join us there. Also, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing. Uh, thanks for sharing. Uh, it's that kind of contribution that allows us to keep growing and to remain on the charts. So thanks. Welcome to Required Reading. Uh, this episode, we are checking in with a classic, Beowulf, which Joseph Campbell used to predict the return of the Jedi. Um, I'm your host, Nick Hoffman, and, and my compatriot here... Mike Burns, welcome. And we have a new guest. Yep, Mike Carroll. Hey, Mike. Uh, and we are here to talk about the 12th century, 11th century classic? Yep, yep. Uh, uh, anywhere from 700 to 1000 AD. Yeah. The, uh, the, the original authorship uh, year is kind of still... Still up in question. Uh, so we're talking Beowulf. Uh, and because we're talking about something so old, uh, I'm going to say specifically we're using the Seamish Heaney uh, translation. Uh, the one I read in school, they don't use anymore, which tells you a lot. Uh, I think it was the Penguin Classic Edition. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, so we're talking Beowulf. What can you tell me about Beowulf, Mike? Well, let's introduce Mike. So yeah, Mike's a, a fellow English teacher in our department at Marist, and what are you currently teaching, Mike? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm teaching eighth grade, uh, which is actually where um, I teach the Seamus Heaney translation of Beowulf. Um, I'm also teaching 11th grade this term, um, which is our British Lit curriculum. Um, mm -hmm. And then during the winter term, um, most often it's during the winter term. I think last year was during the spring term. Um, but we have a creative writing curriculum that I also teach as well. Um, so I, eighth grade, 11th grade, uh, creative writing. I've also done some, uh, some 10th grade as well, uh, alongside Mr. Burns. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's kind of my, my teaching role. I do also coach, uh, here at Marist as well. I'm the, uh, three season yeah, coaches. Yes. I'm the head seventh grade football coach, head seventh and eighth grade swimming and diving coach. Um, and for the last, nine years or so I've been coaching the sprinters on the middle school track team so and if you can't tell he sounds like a new father <laughs> uh that that is the creeping exhaustion shout out to Avery yes. yeah. Yeah. his Avery. daughter at home and his wife uh Catherine is also uh English teacher, teacher. Yeah. Yes. so lit is steeped in and I will invite you for this uh as December rolls around. We, there's only so many Christmas classics we could do, so we decided to do kids' books. Okay. Uh, so if you want to come and bring in a kids' book that you have introduced Avery to, um, we, we are doing a kind of a kids' book exchange to talk about American Lit from that perspective really as cool. well. Really cool. Um, 
So, so way, we, we back up. So yeah. some insider scoop here. So I hired Mike. Yeah. A great job <laughs> as, when I was department chair. I also hired Catherine. Yeah. So, so um, <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the things I think was really great is like when you came in and you and Jason were uh, revamping the curriculum, you brought Beowulf to eighth graders, which yeah. was a really bold move. So I want to hear more about that because part of what we yeah. touch on in this in the podcast is like how we teach it or why we would teach it or why we would not teach something. So. Yeah. I don't think that's something that a lot of people would do at the eighth grade level. So definitely want to hear about that. Yeah, we assembled kind of a list of books we wanted to talk about, and Beowulf was on it. And Mike Byrne, my my Mike, uh, jumped. He said, "Mike is going to want to talk about yes. this. We need to we need to have him on for Beowulf." So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit about how it is and why it is really that we started um, that we started teaching Beowulf in eighth grade. Um, I started saying uh, kind of before before we started recording that. Um, that we that we used to teach uh, the Fitzgerald translation of the Odyssey, which is a really dense and really um, really difficult for eighth grade um, text, and it's super long. And so what, what ended up always happening was we needed to only kind of like teach book one and then jump to book five and then kind of jump around to book nine and then make sure that we got to uh, make sure that we got to the Cyclops and then and kind of like jumping and jumping around and it, and it made things kind of difficult and felt very disjunct, especially for a story that doesn't necessarily follow uh, like a standard trajectory. And you're, you're kind of jumping around in terms of the timing of the story itself. And then of course you're jumping around in terms of, of us teaching it. So it was, it was very difficult to, uh, to teach the, Odyssey, but part of what we really liked about the Odyssey is that it was epic poetry. Um, so when we knew that we wanted to take the Odyssey out of the curriculum, it became the conversation of, okay, well, if we take it out, what are we going to put in its place? Um, so we wanted something that we would be able to teach. We knew that we wanted it to be during the winter term. Um, however long in that winter term was kind of was kind of still up for debate, but we knew that we wanted it to be during that winter term, and we wanted it to be epic poetry. And the reason for that is because we start off with To Kill a Mockingbird in the fall term, and then we make our way towards Romeo and Juliet in the third term. So we were looking for something kind of epic poetry-esque that we could use in order to bridge that gap from the fall when we're teaching a, a very kind of conversational text in To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, beautiful text, but but very uh, kind of informal, almost in its language. And we needed to somehow like plant the stepping stones in place in order to branch to Romeo and Juliet in term three. Um, and so we we knew that we wanted it to be kind of like something that we could, after having years of nightmares of jumping around, we wanted to teach whatever this text was. We wanted to teach the whole thing. Um, so it, we we knew that we were looking at kind of like a certain truncated length for the story. Um, and that's when we started thinking, hey, well, we, can, we can do Beowulf. Why don't, why don't we try to do Beowulf? Um, and it, it became the conversation because Beowulf, kind of like the Odyssey, had been kind of kicked around the English department, uh, mm -hmm. to the best of my knowledge. That's really. fair to say, right? Uh, yeah, so, so it was, we had some conversations with those that had taught it before um, and kind of made the decision that if we teach it in class, so very little homework reading so that we can be the ones that are teaching, and really it's such a performative text. Goodness gracious, Shane Nassini wrote such a performative text that uh, that we, if we do it in class, we can help the eighth graders to understand it, and they love it. Uh, so that was that was kind of the, the 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 thing that we wanted was something that had accessible language, which Shane's translation does. We wanted it to be the right length, which Shane Nassini does, and then we we wanted to make sure that that we were able to kind of 
teach it in such a way that we could talk about the literary tools, we could talk about the themes, um, and we could also kind of introduce that notion of verse and poetry that we'd be seeing a little bit later when we got into kind of the, the blank verse and iambic pentameter and the, 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 the rhyming couplets when we got into Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, and you do a beautiful job with it, so um, hats off to you and, and Jason. Um, but had you heard of anyone teaching it at the middle school level prior to that? Because I hadn't. And, um, I, don't, I don't think that I ever had. Um, the, the, my first introduction to Beowulf, to any translation of Beowulf, was the Seamus Heaney translation. Um, but it was when I was a senior in AP in, right. my, in my high school. Right. Um, and my, my, my teacher, uh, Jay Pollock, was, was the one who introduced me to, to, uh, to Beowulf when we were reading it. And it was, um, I loved the story then, but I, really love the story now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that that just comes from, from, from having taught it so much and, and um, so much of my master's degree is, uh, is, based, in, uh, is based in Beowulf as well. Um, but, but yeah, I, I had never heard of it really being taught to, to middle schoolers. But when I looked at the language, it was, it was one of those things where it's like, no, we can, we can definitely do this, especially, you know, I think that there's a difference between sending them home with 10, 15 pages worth of homework reading, or just doing it in class. Right. I knew that if we covered it in class, the language was accessible enough that we'd be able to do it. Right. Totally. Yeah, that's good. Did you read it when you were here as a student? I did. Like, Mike said definitely... it was kicked around for a while. Like, <laughs> it was not an AP, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but we did it in junior year for Yeah, Brit we did Lit. it in junior, and yeah. um, there was – I mean, you said it was Brit Lit, right? I think it was around when I was reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. We read – uh, some of the Canterbury tales, uh, including the Miller's tale, which I still think is very funny. Um, oh, yeah, it's a fart joke. It's great. A six hundred year old fart joke. Who's gonna I'm worried about that? you if you don't think it's yeah. funny? Um, but yeah, so it was nestled into that kind of thing, and I think we did one form or another of like an epic tale in almost every unit to one, or every uh, term to one degree or another. And so we did an old version of it, which I don't think was as good. I must have missed the Heaney translation by like a year or two. Um, yeah. I guess I'm a skosh older than you. <laughs> a skosh. Um, but I was with uh, Mary Beth Cox, now Zibilich, right. um, for that. So, yeah, okay. very good. Yeah. I think I read it in my junior year of high school, too, when I had Brit Lit. Yeah. Um, maybe my senior I don't know. But um, I encountered it at some point, yeah. Is it possible that we have someone listening? I mean, unless they're listening so they don't have to read it. Uh, <laughs> Wrong uh, podcast. Who, who has not read it? I mean, it's kind of a classic. I mean, I, it's, duh, it's a classic. Uh, like you said, it's possibly 1,300 years yeah. old. Um, but I guess we should talk a little bit about just the structure of it. It's a story told in three acts. It's an epic poem. Yep. Um, it is about a Danish hero, right, named Beowulf. I mean, you can guide us through it, but... Uh, yeah, and he fights three monsters over the course of his heroism. Um, I made a joke about a trilogy, but it is really a trilogy story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, can I like just dive in? Okay, yeah, awesome. talk to yeah, us. Yeah, uh, so I think that um, gosh, where where to go and given that kind of a green light mm -hmm. uh, to talk about Beowulf? Um, I think that the the best way that I've ever heard the Anglo-Saxon epic poem of Beowulf described to me was at Oxford University when I was going through my... Name uh, dropper. Yeah, <laughs> no big deal, right? Um, no, but uh, I, I, I took a class there that that was astoundingly good uh, with Professor Francis Lennigan, um, and he is the Beowulf professor at Oxford University. And when he, when he was in our first couple of classes, he compared Beowulf 
to Forrest Gump. And <laughs> it, that, while that sounds like the craziest thing ever, sure. that has always just stuck with me. And it's, it's so true. Because just like the story of Forrest Gump follows Forrest Gump throughout all of the, the historical events that take place, not just during his life, but throughout like American history, sure. that's the exact same thing that the Beowulf poet is doing with Beowulf. Right. That essentially what we have is a, a, a hero, an epic hero, who is, uh, who is fictional, who has been dropped very precariously into the lineages of these three warring kingdoms. And we get to follow this hero as he kind of like weaves his way in and out, not just of the histories, but also of the legends, also of the myths, also of the, the religious kind of uh, turmoil that's taking place in that part of the world at that time. And so the fictional character of Beowulf is kind of the Forrest Gump of the Anglo-Saxons. And as you follow his trip to, uh, to the land of the Danes and then back to the land of the Gaius and, and then into the, 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 the the following Swedish wars that, that, that come afterwards, you're essentially following the history of these people through Beowulf. But that, I, again, I kind of, I kind of digress here in, in talking about Forrest Gump and how it's compared to, uh, to Beowulf. But, uh, but you're absolutely right. Just in, in terms of the structure of the story, we get uh, Beowulf who leaves, uh, who leaves the, the land of the Gaius and goes to the land of the Danes, um, where he fights first the monster of Grendel, and then they have a celebration. Well, actually, they have a celebration, and then he fights the monster of Grendel, and then they have another celebration, and then he fights Grendel's mother, and then they have another celebration. And then he goes back to, uh, to Sweden. He goes back to the land of the Gaius, and they, they kind of throw him kind of like a weird welcoming party. Uh, I think that's the best way to kind of describe yeah. it. And then there's treasure that's exchanged. And then 50 years later, Beowulf is king. And it's yeah. like, what? What happened here? Yeah. Uh, and it's only it's only in, as you're saying, kind of like the third section of uh, of this story that you get in, in three separate parts. First, it's the narrator, uh, the narrator that kind of lets you know. Then Beowulf himself tells you. And then the uh, and then it's the messenger that's that's. Uh, that's letting everybody know the, the death of Beowulf, how it is that Beowulf actually ends up being king. And it's through this, this cyclical war between the Gaiots and the Swedes that, this, that, that he ends up actually taking the throne. Um, and I, that is the part of the story that I'm far beyond the most fascinated with, is that those Swedish wars and how, uh, and how they led to Beowulf being king, and then ultimately how that is intersecting in so many ways with the, the dragon which is the, the, of course, the, the third climactic battle. It's the battle that, uh, that takes the life of the dragon and, uh, and also the, the hero of Beowulf. Um, and then they have not a celebration, but kind of like a funeral mourning that takes place um, at, the, at the end of the story. So that's kind of just very briefly the, the overview of the plot. Totally. And, and the way it's kind of structured you, like you said, it's almost an allegory for how the wars were fought, Absolutely. and considering that the Anglo-Saxons are kind of this nemesis to the Brits, to the English, uh, and then become the founders of the English, there, it's also kind of a morality tale, like, well, was it okay that the Scandinavians came over and conquered us? Well, yeah, there's this great guy. Uh, first, there's Hrothgar, and Hrothgar yeah. needs some help, and so he calls 
you know, everyone keeps getting eaten, as it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Beowulf comes along and is the hero that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of fills into that gap of who is the person who should lead us? And you have the physical strength. And then it turns out, like you said, for five decades, it's kind of the king. And he's yeah. a pretty good king. Um, so it, he fulfills everything. And there's, like, pages missing from the manuscript. Uh, you can also tell, uh, like we alluded to, uh, whenever the first edition came out, it was probably a bard's tale that was tying together histories. And then it evolves until we get to the 10th or 11th century where it starts getting written down. And by then... England has Christ, uh, Christianized, so they add a lot of Christian iconography, which sometimes fits in seamlessly and sometimes feels like, and now we have to mention something. Yes, yes, uh, Very clearly. Mike, how much do you talk about just the, the history of itself or Old English, and do you mention that in, like, you guys are praising uh, Haney's translation, which I haven't read, I'll admit, um, but what... When you're focusing on the text in class in particular, what what do you tell eighth grade students about Old English or just the structure, the history of how this was performed or, yeah, or recorded? Yeah, absolutely. Or, oh, uh, yeah. So when we're when we're getting ourselves started, we we have the, the like not mandatory but kind of mandatory powerpoints to let them know kind of like okay, this is this is what Old English looks like. Old English is separate from Shakespeare. Right. <laughs> you might think that it's the same, but Old English is much older. Um, so, so kind of just that that explanation. We 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 always put the first like 70 lines of um, of the poem in Old English up on the board, um, and and just kind of let them hear that um, and hear. Oh wow! So can you read Old English? So I I very very slowly. <laughs> yes, right. I can. Uh, but but there's there's so many performances of the right. of. Uh, of the old English, especially that first, the like the the Shield saga, that that Shield episode that comes in the beginning, or the Shield Shepping, or the the Shield Chieftain, as uh, as as Heaney has it translated. Um, there's so many awesome translations of that, or 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 rather, not translations, but uh, iterations of that, where, sure. where people are just reading the old English of it. Um, so so we, we we show them that, and we show them that this is very different from what it is that we're reading here. But there are a lot of similarities in what it is that that Heaney is doing in terms of that translation. And that's when we get to look at the language and we kind of like split the line apart into the the old English and the and the modern English interpretation that, that Heaney has to look at some of the things like the alliteration, right? Now in Heaney's translation, that alliteration is not nearly as rhythmic, nor is it as strict as it is in the old English. In the old English line, every single line has three alliterating sounds. Mm-hmm. So it's two sounds that come in the first part of the line, and then it's the 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 third comes in the 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 third or the, the, the third alliterating sound comes at the end of the line or somewhere in that second half of the line. That's what's called the head state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the alliteration, the form in old English it's beautiful and it's it's so elaborate and so precise. And the the way that it alliteratively sounds is just it's it's incredible to hear to hear it out loud, and that's why I think we'd like to to have them hear a little bit of that old English. But we we see a lot of that alliteration that's in Heaney's translation. Also the kennings, which is just that uh, that that form of the. And I I talk to them about how it's we're trying to take something that is very simple and make it epic, right? right. Just as just as everything is with the epic poem, we're trying to make it kind of like that that next step above. Um, so you take what would be the ocean and call it the whale 
Rogue. Just right. give it that that kind of like added right. level of kind of like epicness to it. And then of course there's the hyperbole, the hyperbole that Beowulf has the strength of thirty in his right arm. You know. Yeah. Uh, so so all these things that are very much in the story that are very much part of that Anglo-Saxon epic poetry that we that were kind of that were 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 incorporated. Uh, for lack of a better word, into into Kini's translation, and those are the things that we're always talking about when they're coming up. And does that um, resonate with the kids, or when they hear the musicality of it that you're talking? That do you see the lights go on? Or? I think that when when we kind of stress upon it as much as we do, uh, we, we we hit it with the hammer pretty hard as, right. we're, as we're going through, and especially at so much of it, I'm reading and Jason is reading in class. Uh, so it gives me an opportunity to really emphasize on those alliterating sounds. Um, and kind of at the same time, though, I think I think a lot of what resonates with them, more so than just being able to say, like, oh, okay, we have three sounds here that are the same sound starting our words. That's alliteration. Check mark, write that down in the notebook. Kind of a little bit more than that, um, the, the themes that we get into with the, the human code and how it is that a king must act and how it is that a warrior must act and what it means to be a hero and these people that have an absolute obsession with their identity and their legacy. Uh, the, the first question that Beowulf is asked by the by the Coast Guard when he lands in, in Denmark is, when he lands in the land of the Danes is, who are you and where do you come from? Right. And it just comes back to that notion of who you, who are you, right? So it's, it's that identity and that legacy. Like, how are you going to be remembered and who are you that just keeps circling back ad nauseum throughout the epic poem? Sure. In the beginning, it does fairly much feel like a Monty Python sketch. Like, are you coming to invade us again? You sure seem to have a lot of men. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and horses and weapons. Huh. Well... No, we're not here to uh, we're not here to attack you. Oh, good. Hey, yeah. great. Who yeah. are you anyway? I'm Beowulf. Ooh. Um, yeah. So I, we should talk about the first act a little. Let's do it. Um, so Grendel's monster turns out. Hrothgar uh, mm-hmm. has built like a great bead hall, a great mm-hmm. uh, to himself. Uh, Herot. How would you say Herot? Yeah. Herot. Okay. Um, and. Th- Grendel keeps showing up and eating people. For 12 years. For 12 years. You know, you'd think someone would get around to fixing that problem. Yeah. <laughs> uh, until Beowulf shows up. And Beowulf is there to get Grendel. Uh, mm-hmm. You want to talk about this scene? Because it's, it's an action scene. Like, yeah. we have a, a, a 12th century action scene. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so, and I think that it's in those action scenes that a lot of that alliteration ends up coming. A little bit prior to it, uh, we get kind of like the arrival of Beowulf and then we, we see uh, the, the sky Unferth, who's like the doubter. Right. Um, he doesn't believe everything that, that, that Beowulf is chalking up. And he's like, no, wait a minute. Aren't you that guy that had that swimming competition against that fella Brecca? Isn't that you? It was vanity that made you go on that swimming. And, and then Beowulf like totally puts him in his place. And the reason that I wanted to say that is because I think we, we get our first boast, which is such like an important aspect of the story that like braggadocious right. uh, kind of like epic bragging that we get that that bragging section um, when Beowulf is talking about slaying nine monsters as he as he's swimming here and that's the only reason he would slow down is because he had too many monsters to kill in that swimming match hate it when that happens yeah, I know. <laughs> Darn, right? always the way exactly uh, but but he kind of like puts Unferth in his place but it's all it's all kind of like part of that it's part of like the tradition of the hall um, in that hall of Herod um, which is like the hall of the stag, the hall of royalty yeah. for for Herod. It's it's so symbolic. 
And it's and it's really it is. I mean, it's it's said in Heaney's translation, it's like it's meant to be a wonder of the world forever. So this is supposed to be Hrothgar, the great king Hrothgar, as great as Hugolak is in the in the land of the Gaeus. Hrothgar is that awesome in the land of in the land of the Danes. This is supposed to be like this is supposed to be like his trophy room essentially. And now we've got this darn monster who's coming down, and he's and he's like pestering the hall for twelve years. And Unferth is there to kind of like he's kind of like that first line. Well, actually, the first line of defense is the Coast Guard, and then we get Wolfgar who's like, but really, who are you? And then we get Hrothgar who's like, but actually, who are you? And then Unferth very symbolically says, no, but but who are you in terms of like what, your deeds? What what have you done? Right. right. So we get we get Beowulf through like he's almost kind of like passing each of these tasks as he makes his way up to like video game mode like the the boss of the first level which is which is our our monster of grendel um who comes greedily loping as it's described down through the shadows interesting that he never fights during the day he's a night monster he's a nocturnal um so he's we, we get a, a night monster with grendel also never speaks so we get a a monster here that is, that isn't able to to express um, and he's just eating people left and right. Yeah. Um, the people that he can't fit because his mouth is too full, he puts in his little pouch and he brings them back up to his to his cave where he's gonna he's gonna munch on them later. Yeah. Um, but but anyways, uh, yeah. So so to, to get into the fight, we get Grendel who comes down um, and during the night, which I, I do think is is significant, if for no other reason than to show the difference that. The dragon, very distinctly at the in the third part of the poem, only attacks during the day. It never attacks during the night. It's only during the day. So we get a little bit of a symbolic difference there between Grendel and Grendel's mother, and then of course the mm-hmm. uh, the, the the dragon that comes at the last part of the poem. So he comes down at the he comes down, attacks the hall for twelve years, and now Beowulf is here. So Beowulf pretends to be asleep. Oldest trick in the book, right? Right. Pretends to be asleep until until Grendel's like claw essentially is right on top of him, and then he turns over and he gets himself in an arm lock with Grendel, and they're thrashing about the hall and they're making sure that that every single table has been turned up and that there's not a a, a mead goblet left unstirred, and they're kind of throwing one another around the around the hall, which is described as singing throughout all of this, and there's. There's a lot going on with the hall there, and the 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 celebration of the hall, the singing that takes place in the hall. Um, it's very historic and very symbolic. Um, but he gets himself in this arm lock with Grendel, and then slowly we see that he is given the glory of God to be able to win the fight. Right. And that's and we get so many of those moments where it's like. You can attribute a lot of this to Beowulf because he's the epic hero, but then so much of it also is created by God. That you get that theme of faith that we also talk about in eighth grade. That 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 God is ultimately kind of the one that's that's pulling the strings here. But as he as he kind of like doesn't quite kill Grendel yet, uh, but he rips off the arm of Grendel, which right. I do a dramatic reenactment in eighth grade, which is which is very fun and the kids very much enjoy. Uh, but tears off the arm of Grendel and then has it mounted up above Hrothgar's like fireplace. Right. And this is his this is his great trophy, right? So Hrothgar is he's stoked. Because yeah. now not only does he have the, the death of the monster Grendel that's been attacking his hall for twelve years, but now he he has the, the trophy to show for it. And Grendel's left with like one arm to crawl his way back to the to like the lair essentially of Grendel and Grendel's mother, um, and leaving the 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 torn off arm there in Herod, 
Um, and then I don't know how much you want to get into kind of like the celebration that comes afterwards or not, but that's that's kind of like the, the first episode essentially. Sure. And that <laughs> the celebrations, that's where it feels very Tolkien. It's just like, and then they sang a song, and then yeah. they drank for three and a half pages. Yeah. Um, I will say, like, we should also talk, I guess, here in a country that's learning Christianity, there's a lot there. Like, uh, Gretel's supposed to be descendant of Cain, and yeah. therefore. Uh, Beowulf is supposed to somehow not only be divine justice, but like you said, God has chosen him in some way. Uh, so it links this idea that the monarchy is also in some ways chosen by God. And that's something that, of course, translates down. Um, and again, I like the idea of the Trinity. Like <laughs> you have three tests, you have three monsters, and a lot of the stuff comes up in sets of threes because A, it's easier to remember, but B, it has this religious iconography. Right. So to have – to literally – destroy the son of Cain, and I, I guess also he can beat him on his own battleground, right? right. At night. Uh, he also, I think, rejects having a weapon because he wants to prove he is the equal to Grendel. Yeah, that's true. I forgot to, I forgot to even mention that. He's like, you know what? I don't, I, I don't need a weapon. I don't need a sword. If he doesn't need a weapon, I don't need a weapon. Exactly. Um, to hold his mighty arm up because yeah. his arm can hold 30 men. Right, uh, exactly. exactly. You couldn't handle one Beowulf. Um, yeah. So there you go. And then, just as an aside, but have you guys read, or this could be a future book, Grendel by John Gardner? I have. It's been 20 years, yeah. but it's great. I have not. Oh, really? No, no. Oh, I, wow. I haven't. It was uh, in the, the AP class when I first read Grendel, um, we, we, jumped right from, we jumped right from Beowulf into Paradise Lost. So we never actually covered, I, I think in, in the... In, one of our other classes, one of our other, uh, one of our other teachers did teach Beowulf alongside Grendel, which right. is a really cool comparison. Yeah. Um, and that's that. I, I haven't read this story, but I know that it's it's the it's kind of the, the tale spoken from from Grendel's, from Grendel's point of view. Yeah. So it just it'd be fun maybe later in our curriculum somewhere to pick it up for the juniors or yeah. something to, to yeah. have a call back there. It's, no it's a great book though. Yeah. It is a fantastic book. Yeah. Um, no one needs to see that movie. The movie was terrible. <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, Angelina like, Jolie. Like Ten years Andy ago Hopkins. or something. Oh yeah. yeah. CGI nonsense. It's it's bad. That's too yeah, bad. I think that's that's Angelina Jolie playing um, playing Grendel's mother. I think you're right. And the the description and his translation is. That Grendel's mother is supposed to be a tarn hag from hell. That's right. And I don't know in what world Angelina Jolie could be described as a tarn hag from hell. Playing against type, yes. That's right. Typecasted, if you will. Well, and even the trailer looks like she's seducing Babel from like, you didn't read the story. (laughs) No one read the story. Um, But yeah, okay. Uh, So... We we have an arm mounted on the wall, which effectively yeah. is designed to don't we all? Well, of course, all <laughs> right. Right to bear arms, uh, right, Grendel's arms in this case. Um, but it, it Grendel's mom hears about this, and this is mockery, right? Yeah. So to her, this is a challenge directly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, <laughs> level two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> literally. Ready fights like Mortal Kombat, quite literally. Yeah. Um, so so what ends up happening after like it's in I think that the 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 narrator. Of Beowulf is such a fascinating character, if you will. Um, in in order for it technically to be considered an epic poem, like one of the criteria is that the narrator is supposed to be, and I'm laughing because I think that when you apply it to Beowulf, it is kind of like a laughable criteria. Sure. But the narrator is supposed to be like like unbiased yeah. in their opinion of, and which is just totally not the case when it comes to the when it comes to the, the Beowulf narrator. I mean, he is he is all about Beowulf. Yeah. Um, but but um, but yeah, with when when we get kind of the, the onslaught of that of that second 
battle that's taking place. We get kind of like the flashing back here and there. Uh, so we get like the celebration that starts immediately. They're like, oh, we got the arm on the wall, time to celebrate, time to drink. Um, and, that's, and that's exactly what they do. The, they sing their songs, and that's really where you get a lot of the histories of the Anglo-Saxons. Um, it's also where you get a lot of the legends of the Anglo-Saxons. Um, and most importantly, I think that you see the importance of those songs to what it is that it does for these people. Um, they're meant to be kind of like the lessons as to like, act this way, don't act this way. Right. And you get that in the very first song. You get the story of King Harriman, who became miserly and didn't give away treasures to his people. And what ends up happening to him? He gets executed in Jutland by his own people. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, you don't follow what it is that you're supposed to do as a king. This is what happens. But now let's take a look at, at Sigmund. Who's the great who's the great warrior who actually goes out and kills a dragon? Holy cow, he's not even a king. He doesn't have to give that treasure away. He gets to keep it for himself. And it's like, be like Sigmund, don't be like Herod. Right. It's pretty like heavy-handed in, in kind of like the, the lessons that it's trying to teach. But they celebrate that, but the biggest kind of reward that ends up taking place in its its it works. It, it works itself so wonderfully. And this is this is regardless of the translation, it's not just Seamus Heaney who's who's doing this, but Hrothgar adopts Beowulf as his son right. at the end of at the end of that fight, and that's like a I'm trying to think of like the equivalent in like today's day and age. There really isn't one. Like the whole the whole hall, I would imagine, would like fall silent. Like what? Yeah. Like you can't do that. You can't just promote a warrior from another country right. to be your like son. Now he is essentially like in line to be heir in the throne to to the throne in. Uh, here in the land of the Danes. Not cool, dude. Right. And even his wife, wealthy, I was like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Like, this is going to end up with, this is going to end up with serious turmoil for our sons. Um, and that's what wealthy I was looking after there. And that's part of the reason why it's, it's, it's not okay for Hrothgar to have done that. But it does, I think, give you a little bit of a glimpse into the, the importance of the monsters. Because we, and we talk about this in class too, what are these monsters really representing? Well, if you look at what it is that, that is tor tor tormenting and kind of like taking down the land of the Danes for these 12 years, well, it's the aging of Hrothgar, historically, and then it's the fratricide that ends up coming as a result of the, the there's too many heirs upon which to bestow the throne in the land of the Danes. So all of these siblings of cousins and, and brothers, and now apparently Beowulf is throwing his hat into the ring, mm -hmm. are all fighting with one another, and that's really... And, and there are a lot of there's a lot of ink that's been spilt, obviously, about what does Grendel represent, what does Grendel's mother represent. But one possible theory is that it is that fratricide, which is why it's such an important moment that that Beowulf is adopted, because now yeah. now all of a sudden this great warrior who has the strength of 30 in his right arm is throwing his hat into the ring here. Right. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> to go back to the no, I, I was going to just jump in before we move too far. This is also interesting because I imagine if you're part of this. Anglo-Saxon dynasty, wherever this is coming from, it's also an explanation of what your king may be doing. Because in ancient Rome, you would adopt the next Caesar, right? And it's also an explanation. How the hell are these Danes getting here? Like, why, why, <laughs> why are there these different rate? Like, why is there a Jutland nearby? Well, right. we needed them at one point, and they're now kind of part of our family. And this is how it comes around. It, like, it it explains everything, Absolutely. and it's also this idea. We can choose our best leader. We don't need to just let it be inherited, which falls apart. And so you can imagine someone who's telling the story is to say, we shouldn't have let Edward III come up. Right. There would have been a better leader if they had chosen who we wanted to actually lead. Yeah, and, and, and if you do if you do kind of take the, the 
the monsters to be kind of the historical representation of what ended up taking down these dynasties, what it is that took down the Danes, what it is that took down the Gaeans, what it is that yep. took down the Swedes, then it, it starts to make a lot of sense because yep. the what ends up happening at the end of the Danes is the exact opposite that ends up happening with the Gaeans. That the the Danes end up suffering from too many heirs that are that are ready to to kind of like take over the throne. Fratricide ensues. People end up murdering one another, and then the Danish Empire kind of dissolves. And it's the exact opposite that ends up happening with the Gaeans. We have if, if you remove Beowulf from the the like kingly line in the land of the Gaeans, what mm-hmm. you're left with is uh, Harabald and Hefsun, who are who. Are, it's it's like the the story of uh, Gother and um, and Boulder with the 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 I'm, I'm not sure how familiar our listeners would be with the the tale of Loki with the mistletoe mm-hmm. uh, with the mistletoe um, tip that that was guided into the that was guided into Boulder that actually ended up ensuing Ragnarok which took yeah. down the which took down kind of like the the Norse um, pantheon right. so to speak. Um, but the after after kind of like the accidental whoops shot an arrow and, and killed my brother had seems only only alive for a little while for the first siege of the actually technically the second siege or the third siege if you will of the Swedish wars but then Hugelak which is the king that the poet is obsessed with um, it's the Gaeat king it's it's Beowulf's king um, and historically he is like Mister Gaeat he is like the big guy. Um, and then there's a daughter who ends up getting married off to, uh, who ends up being the, the mother of Beowulf, right? right? But if you look at where the kingly line ends, it ends with Hugelak. Mm-hmm. And he has a son whose name is Heardred, who dies in the midst of the Swedish wars. And it's historically, it's after that death of Heardred, who is very young when he's king, and ends up, they, they don't have another heir to take over the throne. Sure. And that's when the, the Swedish Empire, the Swedes, end up coming in and taking over the land of the Gaeus, and thus ends the Gaea Empire. Right. So if you look at the land of the Danes, we have this fratricide, right? All these extra people that want that that want that want throne, and that ends up with their demise. And then if you look at on the on the Swedish side of things and on the Gaea side of things, the thing that actually takes them down, if you follow the, the analogy there, the, the thing that then the dragon would represent is the Swedish Wars, the right. thing that, that historically ends up bringing about the um, the end of the Gaeans. And that's what I wrote my, like, 150-page master's thesis on, awesome. was, that, was that, uh, um, that allegory of that dragon fight. Sure. So is it reading too much, or I'm, I'm just, I'm not as familiar with all that, that lore or the history, but similarly, like, in retrospect, you're lionizing someone in order to legitimize what is going on politically, not unlike what Shakespeare did with Macbeth, like very flattering to James. And... I don't. I don't think that it's. I don't think that it's that it's reading too much into it at all. I okay. think that that's, that there's a lot of that that's going on. Um, I think that it's at the same time uh, trying to do so in a political sense, mm-hmm. and it's also trying to do so in a religious sense okay. as well. That that a lot of kind of the it's almost kind of like a religious retelling of these people's history, just as it is a, a political retelling of these people's history. Um, but there's there's so much historically that's in the background here. That's why I like the Forrest Gump analogy so much because it it kind of helps to lace 
yeah. or helps to explain rather the like the lacing through and the intersections of where it is that the legends, people like Sigmund, people like the people like the like the troll fighting trope yeah. that that a troll will come and attack you on your home ground, but then oh you need to get your vengeance and go back up to their lair, yeah. right? So that these these tropes it's, it's as much history as it is legend as it is as it is kind of like legit religious telling of these people's history. I, I was thinking of Hamlet when you're saying like everyone's killed each other. Luckily there's another prince riding up to yeah. save the day right. right at the end. Um, also I think I assembled a hugelac from IKEA. Um, yeah. <laughs> that does sound very Ikea. It does. Um, While eating your meatballs. Yes. That's right. So let's kill a mother. Yeah, yeah. So, so round it's two. Freudian now, suddenly. Yeah, that's right. As, as, as you're saying, round two. So Grendel, like, claws his way with his one arm up to, uh, it's at the top of a mountain, but it's also down, like, at the bottom of a lake, essentially. Um, and the, there's the lair where Grendel and Grendel's mother live. So Grendel comes back. Um, one armed into uh, into the lair, and it's at that time that Grendel's mother, seeking that vengeance, comes down and attacks. Now again, it's it's after the celebration, um, and it's not until it's not until nighttime. So once again, we have a nocturnal a nocturnal attack by Grendel's mother, who comes down and is wreaking havoc in in um, in Herat, but only long enough to like really grab one person. Um, and that person's interesting. It's like Hrothgar's right-hand man. Um, his name is Asher, and takes Asher, and you learn a little bit later on when you have the, the dismayed king that needs to be, like, given a, a pep talk by our great hero um, in order to, like, go out and ride out into, like, on, into the sunset in order to, like, get that vengeance. If you're, if you're hearing kind of the, the Riders of Rohan story here, it's, it's, it's right, not totally. accidental, obviously. Um, but the, um, the takes Asher, brings him up to the mountain, and decapitates Asher, leaves his head on the side of the lake, dives down to, to mourn the death of, of Grendel. So, so it's at this time where, where those in the land of the days are like, oh shucks, we thought we had it, but now Grendel's mother is here. Um, and so Beowulf kind of like says, I need you to be the man that you're supposed to be. Yeah. And again, I can imagine the whole like false silence. What did he just say to the great King Hrothgar? Very similar to what happens in Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, and then, but Beowulf takes it well, thankfully, um, and kind of like they, they ride off to the mountains, and that's when they see the decapitated head of Asher, um, which is very problematic. Um, the decapitation back in the time of the Anglo-Saxons would mean that you are not permitted to enter heaven. Uh, so the separation of the body from the head um, is like, really, like, tears out the guts right. of, the, of those from the land of the Danes. Hrothgar can't handle it. Um, so they, they side and weep while Rave Beowulf has, like, a fight with some of these, um, some of these, like, these lake monsters. <laughs> like, we get, we get some, like, <laughs> some, like, sea dragons and, like, little, little like, lizards and stuff that, that come in and are really more of a pest than anything else. Um, uh, and then Beowulf kind of, like, dives down. Um, I can't remember in the in the Hebrew translation how long it says that he swims for, but it's certainly hyperbolic. It's like a day and a half. Right. <laughs> but supposedly he's swimming down in this lake to find the to find the lair. Um, but then we encounter we encounter the um, the the lair of Grendel and Grendel's mother, um, and it's it's actually Grendel's mother that attacks first, um, grapples with Beowulf, um, and unlike in the fight with Grendel. 
Beowulf starts to lose, and it's almost like that chick in the armor for the first time that you that you see for for Beowulf that like ooh we might have we might have like the loss of our hero on our hands here. Fortunately, Beowulf does indeed like get the better of uh, get the better of Grendel's mother. But the, the way that it's described is that this 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 knife that she had, it's like a stabbing knife, um, ends up churning when it tries to hit Beowulf. So like. Do we have an immortal hero on our hands? It's right. kind of that, that like hyperbole that we get. But nevertheless, Beowulf takes this sword, given to him none other than Unferth, the doubter, when he first got to the land of the Danes, and he brings it down on the neck of Grendel's mother, and it's been decided by God that no weapon like made by any human would ever be able to destroy the monster. Now, Beowulf didn't know this at the time, uh, but he, but as a result, he brings the sword down and the sword snaps. Uh-oh, hunting. The great sword that Uferth gave me for this battle isn't working anymore. Whatever am I going to do? Of course, he sees the sword of legend, the sword of myth, right. um, that, that's kind of, uh, that's like up in the armory of the, of the monsters of Grendel's mother and of Grendel. He, he alone is able to pull it off the wall, or be reminded of yeah. war, right? So he's, he's, he's able to take the, the, King the Arthur, yeah. sword Arthur. off of the, or, or King Arthur, yeah, yeah. absolutely, uh, able to take the, the sword off of the wall. And because this was the sword that was used in the killings of giants and monsters, it wasn't forged by man. So now all of a sudden he can use this great sword in order to, in order to kill Grendel's mother. Not only does he chop off Grendel's mother's head, but now we chop off the, the head of poor dead Grendel. We're also going to chop off Grendel's head, and that's actually the prize that they take with them up through the waters and back to the hall at Herat. It's the blood of the monsters, though, that actually melts the blade. Uh, so the, that great monster-killing blade ends up, um, ends up dissolving, and kind of symbolically, if you read into that, kind of very similar to the, like, humankind, where we have humankind with the the legacies of these lineages that are killing one another. We get the sword that kills the monster, and then the monster destroys the sword. Yeah. So it's, it kind of like comes full circle there in, in, the, in the destruction of this sword. Um, but anyways, we grab uh, Grendel's head and the hilt of this sword, and we bring it back to, uh, to, um, back to the hall at Herat. Um, one thing that I think I failed to mention, when, uh, when Grendel's mother came down to the hall at Herat, she grabbed the, the arm off of the hall at Herod and brought it back, uh, brought it back up to the lair. Um, so now we, we left the arm in the lair, but we brought the head of Grendel back, and now that's the even better trophy that we brought um, back to uh, back to the hall at Herod. Right. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 funny because a we have again like a Mario level where he's swimming underwater for a day and a half to try to get to this monster. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's this idea that there was an age of monsters that is a bygone mm-hmm. age. And it's an explanation for that, too. It's, you know, King George slaying the dragon. Like, at a certain point, there aren't monsters anymore. What happened to them? Well, yeah. the heroes destroyed them. And there was this, it was really convenient that there was this one weapon that could kill them, but it's gone. So, yeah. <laughs> we have, we have the hilt still. Well, and I think that, I think that part of the reason for that, if you, if you think back to kind of the, the, implementation of Beowulf into this story, it, it, that's that's what had to be done. We needed yeah. to essentially take an epic hero, implant them into a convenient legacy, yeah. and then have him 
goes throughout all of kind of the monster fighting epic battles that he does, and then strategically remove him from the history of these people so that the history hasn't been hasn't been changed, nor has this story that's been. It's it's almost like Back to the Future. Like yeah. we gotta we gotta like go in there and get in and get out without without making too much of an adjustment to any of the like histories that are taking place there. You know. Totally. I mean, and Grendel and his mother are described as like these Hieronymus Bosch-like people just dissolving men in their mouths. But it's also the story of mankind overcoming nature, and now now we're in charge. These yep. monsters are gone. We have vanquished them, and now we are the superior on Earth. It's it's Greek in that way as yeah, well. Yeah, as you're thinking, I had, I don't remember that from reading it. I don't know why it's been that long, but um, very archetypal, very like Medusa and Perseus and oh, yeah. and all that, and so it's just interesting. Um, yeah, I mean Odysseus and the we Cyclops. Tell, we tell the yeah, same story absolutely. over and over in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Last we have our last boss, which comes much later after this sermon Hrothgar yeah, gives, yeah. Um, and we get the dragon. A slave steals a cup. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Isn't it always the way? Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we have a parable about stealing. Uh, yeah. Leads to the death of hundreds. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the last fight, like you kind of alluded to, uh, we have fifty years have passed. Yeah, as they do. And um, a slave steals a cup, which leads to a dragon to attack during the day, right? right. And do, I mean, you you've done such a good job telling us. I don't yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'd love to I'd love to just jump right into um to kind of the do you want me to go into a little bit of the the history that kind of leads into him becoming king? Sure, whatever. Okay, so uh, so the it's the cyclical war that's the Swedish wars that ends up with Beowulf being. Uh, becoming the king in the land of the Gaius. Now, if you think back to kind of the trajectory, Beowulf was never going to become king. Right. Why? Because he's the son of an unnamed daughter and a murdering outcast. Right. He was never going to become king in the land of the Gaius. But all of a sudden, now 50 years later, through some awesome rise to power, Beowulf now is king in the land of the Gaius. This is what ends up happening. So we have the great king Hrethel, who's the king, he's like Big Papa Gate. He's the one that's like kind of at the top of the legacy. And he has, he has according to the, the poem, he has four children. He has Herobald, he has Hefsun, he has Hugelak, who's the great king Hugelak. And then he has, according to our poem, uh, an unnamed daughter, who is the mother of Beowulf. Um, Herobald and Hefsun are in their backyard, shooting bow and arrows, whoops. Let loose that arrow, fires into uh, fires into Herobald's heart, and now Herobald dies. So now this this is terrible for the land of the Gaets, uh, but it becomes even worse because then as a result, King Hrethel dies of grief. So now we have very young boys, very young children, um, who are in a position of being the kings in a kingdom where the king that's been there for a very long time has just died unexpectedly um, and. Now all of the other surrounding kingdoms are chomping at their bits uh, because they, they see that the great Geat empire is vulnerable. So the Swedes, one, one group, um, who's, to use kind of the phrase, Big Papa Geat, if we were to talk about Big Papa Swede, it's Ongentiao. Ongentiao has two sons, Ophir and Onel. So Ongentiao comes over and it's the first siege of the Swedish wars. Uh, when Hrethel is susceptible, uh, Hrethel has just died, so the Gaet Empire is susceptible, and uh, on Gethiao, with his son, 
both Bear and Onella attack the land of the Gaeats when they're susceptible, and the son of Fair dies. During that fight, they go back to the land of, they go back to the land of the Swedes. We have a retaliation that takes place in which Hethsun heads over to the land of the Swedes and says, not so fast, bud, you're not going to get away with this. And so he sends in, and it's not exactly made totally clear, but we, whether it's actually Hethsun or kind of like a marauding group of Gaeat warriors, but during that next phase of the Swedish wars, they steal the queen. They steal the queen from the land of the Swedes, right from Ongentheow, right, Trojan War. I know. Goodness gracious. So we're stealing the queen and taking her under our custody. This, of course, absolutely enrages Ongentheow, who goes and takes on all the forces, like single-handedly with a small group of army, and drives them back, stealing the Swedish territory, to a kind of camp, so to speak, at Ravenswood. And there they stay throughout the night. He's marauding them with all these things that he's going to do once daytime comes. Daytime comes. King Ongentheow is ready to come down heavy-handed with the axe for them stealing his queen. And it's at that time, we hear the trumpet of Hubilak. And the younger brother of Hethsun comes to the aid of Hubilak, comes to the aid of Hethsun. They're in Swedish territory. We have a big battle that takes place. It's the Battle of Ravenswood, in which Hethsun is killed by Ongentheow. And Hubilak kind of like takes over the forces from there. It's also at that time, though, that they drive Ongentheow back. And the two warriors from the land of the Gaeus, Efer and Wolf. Interesting that we have part of our epic hero's name that's embedded in that warrior who goes and fights Ongentheow. Battle ensues. Ongentheow stabs Wolf in the head. Wolf stabs Ongentheow in the head. And Efer ultimately is the one that ends up killing is the one that ends up killing Ongentheow. So they go back to the land of the Geats, things or Gaeats, things things seem to be things seem to be going pretty well. And it's Efer is awarded the daughter's hand in marriage by Hugleck. It's this great kind of like almost romanticized in a way story of of recognition of a warrior who was able to do his job. Couple of year, couple more years pass, and then um, it's at that time that Hugleck, um, Hugleck ends up going on his raid in uh, into the land of the Franks, and he ends up getting killed. Um, he's wearing at the time the chestplate that his wife, Queen Hugh, was given by Beowulf when he came back from the land of the Danes. Right. So we're trying as best as we can to loop this in. Right. It's, it's kind of like our post way of being like, it's the same story. Like, just just believe me on this, it's the same story. Uh, I get memories of Forrest Gump trying to kind of like weave together the story there. Um, but anyways, uh, the it's at this time that Hugleck, Hugleck ends up dying, and the only person left is King Heardred. Um, so King Heardred, very young, takes over the throne. Now, Queen Hugh, which is the, the wife of Hethsun, wants for Beowulf to be king. Ask Beowulf, will you be king? He says, no, I will not. When I become king, I want to do it on my own terms. Maybe a little selfish of Beowulf. If you look back what ends up happening as a result, nevertheless, um, let's go back to the land of the Swedes. We have Onella, who's now king, um, son of Ongentheow, has two, uh, Ofer had two sons whose names were Eamon and Eagles. They get excommunicated by 
by Onella. Why? Because they're technically the next people to be in line for the throne. So we get the excommunication of the nephew kicked out and kind of like banished. They start knocking on the door of the Geats, who's there but Heardred with the advisor of Beowulf saying, can, can we come in? We have all the secrets of the Swedes. We can help you take down the Swedish Empire. So Beowulf's like, um, yes, jackpot, come in. Ooh, sorry, come in. Let's talk, um, and we'll we'll make sure that we uh, we'll make sure that we do away with those pesky Swedes. Uh, when Ella hears about this, goes back to the land of the of the Geats with his buddy Roston, and that's actually the the father of Wiglaf, who comes and assists in the dragon fight. Comes back to the land of the Geats, uh, kills Heardred. Um, and then we get kind of the retaliation that comes at the end of the Swedish Wars, which is Beowulf and Eagles coming and killing King Onella and taking themselves and putting themselves, uh, he puts uh, Eagles on the throne in the land of the Swedes, he takes the throne in the land of the Geats, and thus we have King Beowulf now in the land of the Geats. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a very long-winded kind of explanation no, it's awesome. of, the, yeah. of the history that leads to Beowulf being king because he's not supposed to be. And I think that his name... I spent a little bit of time more recently thinking about how symbolic and important his name is. We think back to the, the lineage at the start of the story of S.H.I.E.L.D. and what his son's name is, it's Bayo. And then we get, so we get the king who's described as being a great prince and then being a great king afterwards and providing and being like a shield around his people and, be, and providing for his people as best as he can. And then we get Wolf, who comes at the end of the story, who kind of represents that that militaristic side of things. So we get the we get the it's almost like we get the story of like Wolf Bayo. We get the story of warrior and king, who's kind of represented here in this character of Beowulf, who's one of the only characters, the only character that I can think of that kind of rises the ranks from warrior into that into that kingly class and becomes king as well. Sure, sure. I mean, and he earns he earns his way in, which is Absolutely. the important thing, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The more you're talking about it, the more I'm realizing that like the Hobbit is just this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the Eagles even show up, yeah. right? <laughs> and it's like every time Tom Bombadil shows up and like it, like and has like I'm gonna tell you a story for about 20 minutes. That's that's what the story is. Yeah. It's like this is how this king came to power. Right. This is where the writers of Rohan come from. Like you like you were alluding to earlier, but just very funny that the Battle of the Seven Armies happens right before or five armies happens right before this, and that's the War of the Swedes. Right, exactly. Right. And, and, and let's think about that. If you've kind of followed the trajectory there, right, we have the death of the dragon, yep. and then the the near dissolve of these kingdoms that are kind of like collapsing in upon themselves. Right. It's the exact same thing yeah. that happens at the end of Baal. We have the death of the dragon, and then we have the Swedes and the Gaeans who essentially collapse themselves as a result of the Swedish War. Totally. I'm curious, is this... Um... I'm just thinking that what's the historian who was searching for Troy? Um, oh, Schliemann? Schliemann, yeah. Is, is there an equivalent for this? Like people are looking for historical sites where this stuff happened or stuff happened and the myth is based off of this? It, it's kind of it's kind of both at the same time. And I think that it's, it's such an interweaving of legend and history and myth that it's hard to even kind of like put your thumb on what aspect of this is, is is the myth? What aspect of this is the history, right? Um, there are certainly attempts, and there have been for 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 hundreds of years to kind of like find the the, the biggest things. I think that would be the the like looking for the locations of um, would be like the Hall at Herat. I think that that's one like really really big one. Uh, the battle with um, the battle with the dragon. Where did that take place? If, if we're kind of like 
creating this this history of this battle that that took place where we say where's the poet saying that this was taking place and then the um the 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 burial ground of beowulf i think that that's perhaps the most um the most kind of akin to trying to seek out that location of troy and i think that part of the reason for that is because of the the sutton who burial the, right the, yeah the um, burial ship yeah exactly and i think that that kind of spawns some some not only intrigue but also like oh okay like there's there's it, it's almost kind of like a um uh factualization of a lot of what is kind of considered fictional in right. the story of beowulf and it's like oh Maybe this is a little bit. This this is rooted in, at, if nothing else, at least in tradition, right. right? And I think that that's I think that that's kind of part of what that that seeking out kind of I think at its root that's where it comes from. Is right. that true as far as uh, like literary antecedents as well? Is there a, are there many different tales that got told or different oral histories that ended up in this? Manuscript. Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the, and the, whether whether you want to look at it as like legend or not, um, the there's there's a bunch of them. Like that Sigmund and uh, and King Herodmund that I was talking about before. It's really all the songs. The Frisian slaughter with Hildebrand and Hedeth and um, and Hengist, right? That that kind of like it's the red wedding. I mean, it's it's the exact red wedding. They sure. go over to to the land of the Frisians and like during the during the during the wedding ceremony, we have the the slaughter and then we have the the Hildebrand's grief is really what it's what it's called in Shemesi's in, in translation. Um, but we have the that kind of like the that kind of almost like legendary trope almost um, the the stories of Mothruf and Offa, who mm-hmm. like whose names is like bad queen essentially right. she's the one she's the one that like oh somebody looked at me bad you're gonna end up killed right. um and it's kind of like oh but then the good king came around and kind of like like helped to guide them and that's a good example too because it's it's a um it's kind of like a it's almost like a like a moral to the story right like yep. make sure that you're operating like this and not like that uh the biggest one i think is when uh, when Beowulf comes back to the land of the Gaeus and he's talking about the, he has the, the weirdest speech where Kuglak's like, well, 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 where have you been for all this time? And he's talking about, he, has, he goes on this like weird tangent about, um, about Hrothgar's daughter, Fruwaru, who's getting married to this guy, Ingold. And Beowulf goes on for like a hundred lines about like, this is why this is not a good idea. And it's all about like, but what if this warrior comes and lays the sword on the table? You might remember that part. Yeah. And, then, and then, like, and then he says to the elder, like, "Ooh, you're gonna let that fly? No, I'm not gonna let that fly. We kill him in the hall. Then everybody's running rampant, and the hit, and the and the, and the, the families dissolve. Like, that's what's gonna happen as a result of this. And it's like, okay, Beowulf, tell us what you really think. Yeah. Uh, but it's 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 kind of this this kind of like warning as to this is why you don't want to have a political marriage, right? So it, it's almost kind of the the the. There's there's a lot of kind of like those morals that go in there. It's almost like fables um, that are that are instructing at the end of the day. This is how you should be living your life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like it's the, the the way I I was told when I learned it a million years ago was that there's not really an Odysseus, but the war took place. Yes. Right. There may not be a Beowulf, but like like uh, Higelac, I believe is even mentioned by Geoffrey of Tours, the guy who wrote the history of the Franks. Like yes. and that that was in the sixth century. So like we know these people existed, mm-hmm. and this is just a way to kind of tie them all together yes um but yeah it, it's it's interesting i didn't i remember the the whatever the the burial ship yeah uh, the who burial ship um but it's kind of cool 
It is whenever they find something like that, I'm just like, yeah. So was there really a Ravenswood? That, yeah. That's kind of neat. Yeah. yeah. It, 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 it's kind of that. That's what makes the story so interesting. I think is the intersections of all of this legend and history and myth and songs, and then the 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 implementation of Beowulf into that. And I think at the there's there's no better part of the poem I think than right at the end of that song that the shop that the that the the musician is playing in at Herod when he's talking about this is how you should live your life this is how you should not live your life and you should li- also by the way there's this guy Beowulf and it's kind of I think the perfect the perfect kind of like representation of what our Beowulf poet is trying to do he's trying to take a a fictionalized character and weave him into the legends and the history just like that musician just like that shop is trying to weave Beowulf's name into the lyrics of these the lyrics of these kind of like historical legendary stories so that Beowulf's name will last forever and yeah. here we are right. these thousands There's... years later reading reading mm-hmm. the the translations that Seamus is coming up with yeah, yeah. So. awesome you want to kill a dragon, or you want to head home? <laughs> <laughs> I'm speechless. I don't know what to say. I mean, yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 cool because again, we we have a. I always hated books like this when I was in high school because I felt like they weren't speaking the same language. I mean, you mentioned John Donne. I have nightmares. <laughs> like I, I like Paradise Lost. It's such a cool idea. Like you're fighting the devil. Like there's and it's the most verbose nonsense. And so when you have a translation like this, holy cow! Like you you can just, I mean. Reading it aloud probably takes four and a half hours, yeah. right? So you can just do it, and it just gets into it. And then we, we still have a dragon fight. Yeah. And when, I mean, spoilers, Beowulf dies, like, it was your cowardice is the reason he's dead. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. But the idea that you would be cowardly for a second means that the greatest man who's ever lived is about to yeah, die. A cautionary tale, for sure, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's as though, like, Churchill wanted you to read it from the battlefield of World War yeah. II. Don't be cowardly or we all could die. I think like, that, I think... Heaney describes them as tail turners is the way that Wiglyph, yeah. who comes to the aid of Beowulf in the dragon fight, ends up ends up then yeah. like it's it's one of those like sad like scenes where it's like, You're not dead, Beowulf, you're not dead. It's just trying to like pour <laughs> water into his mouth. Um and all the other the quote tail turners who are like watching this are like, Oh, this is really awkward. Um and then of course Wiglyph like in a rage stands up and says, like, You guys are banished. I'm not gonna I'm gonna inform all the other rulers in all the other kingdoms that you are not worth your weight. So you are basically gonna live like nomads for the rest of your life. Get out of my kingdom. And we start to get the impression of the kind of king that Wiglyph is gonna be, aka the kind of king that ends up leading to the demise of the Gia Empire. Right. So you you see kind of like the almost like the, the pages of history, you're 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 given kind of the inclination as to what it is that's going to happen after that final line of the poem. And you get, you get a similar thing uh, with the, the, the last song that we get is actually the song of grief by the lamenting woman right. at, Beowulf's, uh, at Beowulf's funeral. And it says that she was singing tales of how she feared the onslaught of the Swedes and the ambush and the death of all that she knew and loved. And then the narrator has a line, and she was not wrong in what it was that she predicted. Right. And that's it, and that's exactly what ends up happening after after the final line of the poem. We have the demise of the Gaeats as a result of historically the Swedish War, but as a result of in terms of the poem itself, it's it's that it's that allegorical dragon. It's that it's sure. that dragon fight that takes down the last king in the land. Yeah, it's the 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 one king who rose to his ranks off of his own valor. Um, the dragon takes him down, and then that's that's where we have the demise of the the Gaeats in the in the the 
fictionalized, if you call it that. But I hesitate to even call it that because it's so indebted to the history and it's right. so indebted to the legend and the in the myths of the time. That scene is it's sad, but it is very funny. You can just imagine him like almost holding a disembodied head. Like yeah, exactly. he's still fine. He's like yeah. pouring yeah. wine down his throat. It's like, see, Beowulf's all better now. Yeah, talk about Monty Python. He's all dead. <laughs> it's, it's all and he is super dead. Like, it's, <laughs> like bit, bitten in the neck by a dragon. I mean, a, a you don't come back for that, man. No, you really don't. You can't even hear it from the crowd, like with Beowulf's mom or uh, with Grendel's mom. Like, right. you're just dead. Yeah. Um, thanks, Mike. Yeah, yeah this is Dude, awesome, Mike. This is yes. so good. Yeah, this is fun. This is fun. Uh, I mean, I think it's clear that we would, we think this should be taught. It's fantastic. It's, yeah. Um, and I like being just, taught well already. Yeah. And I, I just like that. Like you said, it's all alleg- like you can interpret it as allegory, and you can see just the little basis for so much of our Anglo-Saxon myth-making, right? Like, uh, who was King Arthur? Well, he had a mighty sword, and he slayed, you know, he went for the Holy Grail. Like, these little bits, it all goes back to this poem from yeah. probably 400 years before. A sword that has before. its roots, guess what? Yeah. At the bottom of a lake. Right. Yeah. Where does Beowulf get his sword, that, that sword of legend? From the bottom of a lake. And only one man could possibly get it. Right. Right. Exactly. Like, it, it, it's kind of cool. Like, and I like these medieval tales because the morality is so clear and the stories are so, like you said, epic. Um, it's it's really fantastic. Yeah. Very, um, you know, Joseph Campbell and all that, you know, the power hero, of myth. hero's journey and, yeah, power of myth, certainly. Um, the last question we always ask is, are you reading anything outside of school that you'd like to recommend? Uh, yeah, so actually I was saying, I was saying this to Mike when, uh, when, when we were first walking into the studio. Um, I spent the summer reading the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I had never read before. Um, I had taught for summer reading the, um, the, the Hobbit, but I had never actually sat down and read the trilogy. Um, so this summer, that's that's probably my most recent reading. Uh, I sat down over the course of the summer. I mean, what a dream come true for an English teacher to be able to take the summer and just read the trilogy. Sure. Um, so so that's probably the thing that I've read the most the most recently. Other than that, it's just been. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, the Good Night Train or um, <laughs> uh, Snuggle Puppy is uh, is Snuggle Puppy is a good one. I think uh, Catherine actually was was at the bookstore the other day and um, found a, a book. I think it's entitled like "I Love You, Avery." It's like, oh my gosh, yes, we got to pick that up. Uh, but but yeah, it's been a lot. It's been a lot of children's books uh, as of recently that were uh, that were that we've been reading. But uh, the most the most kind of the the thing that I kind of threw myself into was the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This. Uh, yeah, as a new father, you get dispensation. Yeah. Like, if you can oh, make it through yeah. two pages of real prose, you're way ahead of most people. So, yeah, without falling asleep, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mike, you got anything for um, us? Nothing that I can say. I mean, I'm prepping for a future podcast, so okay. I don't know if I want to give those away, but um, I'm doing my homework that way. So, um, I got a couple. One of these books. Right? I got um, uh, Riddick Beebe, another English teacher, turned me on to this Murderbot series. Ooh. Um, so I just downloaded the audio book for that. I'm going to listen to that this weekend. So, Well, um, I'm going to recommend a book that I just finished um, by uh, John Douglas uh, called Mind Hunter. Uh, it is nonfiction, uh, and it is grim. We're reading it. Uh, we're recording this in October, so it's an appropriate spooky book. Uh, but he's an FBI profiler who tracks serial killers. Oh, and wow. this is his autobiography. Uh, and it talks about, I mean, he's like describing it like he's a modern Sherlock Holmes, like here's how we profile people to find killers. And, you know, he was here for the Atlanta child murders for the Tylenol murders. He helped hunt down BTK, which at the time, no, uh, green river killer, which at the time had not been caught yet. So he's talking like, and apparently he was talking to Mike Burns about this. 
uh, it was former English teachers, one of their favorite books, right? You were talking Tom Ziblich liked it and right, John yeah. McGram. Yeah, John McGram was a big fan of that book, yeah. Um, um, it's remarkable. Yeah. I recommend it. Um, but if you're not into true crime, it is very graphic at times. So, uh, you know, warning there, but it is uh, excellent. Uh, but anyway, so thanks for listening. Um, next month, we're going to try to do something a little bit different. So the first episode of the month of December, uh, we're going to do Wise Blood. Uh, by Flannery O'Connor, just a regular thing. Uh, actually, I'm going to take this again. So December is going to be a little bit different. Uh, I've already kind of told everyone here, but we're going to do uh, children's books. Um, and children's books is kind of a family-friendly month. Uh, but at the end of that, uh, Mike and I are going to exchange books. We're going to do a book exchange. Uh, so I don't know what Mike is going to give no, me. I'm, I'm thinking about it. So. Um, he doesn't know what I'm going to give him, but we're going to do a book exchange on the podcast. So we will have uh, a normal episode at the beginning of the month. We're going to have a family book at the end, and then we'll find out what we're going to be reading for uh, February uh, there. Look forward to it. Yeah. So uh, thanks, guys, for listening. Keep rating, reviewing, sharing. Uh, the more people that share it, the, the better. The more yeah. people hear this. Thanks to Mike Carroll for coming. Oh, yeah, thanks, awesome. Mike. Thanks for having me. This is great. This is awesome. Um, and you'll be back, I promise. Awesome. Uh, thanks, guys. Required Reading is hosted by Dr. Nick Hoffman and Mike Burns. It is a product of Maris Podcasting and Do Better Podcasting. The theme song is written and performed by Davis Burns Media. The podcast is engineered and produced by Nick Hoffman. The opinions expressed here are the opinions of the hosts and guests and do not represent their screen. Thanks for listening.